So, um, one of the most difficult seasons in my faith journey uh, was when I was in seminary, and uh, I was a summer intern uh, as a as a ho- as a hospital chaplain. Um, and I didn't make a very good hospital chaplain, uh, but that's not the reason why it was such a difficult time for me. Uh, so I would spend the nights on call, uh, usually uh, down in the ER or downstairs in the psychiatric department. And then uh, I would go back upstairs uh, to the medical surgery floor. That's where I was kind of placed to be the chaplain, uh, the spiritual supervisor and advisor of that floor. And the medical surgery floor on this hospital in particular, and many of them, is just kind of like a catch-all floor for the hospital that uh, if you're not in CCU or ICU, if it's not an issue with your heart, then you end up there. And so it was like... uh, literally and figuratively, the difference between night and day between uh, these two places. That at night in the ER, it was chaotic and traumatic and fast-moving, and it was just nuts all the time. And then I'd go upstairs in the day, and it was just long and arduous sometimes as people just kind of slowly healed or not. And so on the medical surgery floor... I would be in the room as the doctors would come in and they would say to the patient, "Uh, look, we we need to run some tests. We need to run some more tests. We need to run some new tests. We need to run some different kind of tests. And I would also be in the room when the doctor would come in later and say, we've run all the tests and we've exhausted all of our options. There's nothing left. And it was my job to sit there with the family. And some of those patients, unlike the ER where I sat with a patient or a family for just a couple hours, some of those patients I sat with for days and weeks, even a few of them, it was the entire summer that we spent together. And I had to sit with them as they processed all of this. And some of the hardest cases weren't the ones where the patient didn't believe in God or had no spiritual background. I mean, I I had something that I could offer to them, maybe some sense of hope. The hardest cases were the Christians. Because, because, that in the face of such heartbreaking news, they had this amazing impressive faith. And here I was, I was supposed to be the the spiritual expert in the room. I was about to graduate with my master's in divinity, that I have mastered all divine things. And I would hear the doctors give this just heartbreaking news. Things aren't looking good. We've we've run out of options. And, And I was devastated when I heard the news But they weren't. And that really kind of challenged my faith. Because I saw that their faith was unshaken, but mine was shaken, stirred, and it was just leaking out all over the place. And I I noticed that, that their faith wasn't, it wasn't just a crutch to like get them through to the next place as they limped along. That their faith was something deep, profound, that their faith was something that they had been carrying with them throughout all of these years, and now it was just confidence in what they had always known. They simply 
trusted and trusted God. And that was so impressive to me as a young seminary student who was who thought that I had it all figured out already. And it caused me to re-examine my faith. And so I, I did what, what all of us tend to do when we encounter someone who's going through some things. And in a difficult season, it seems like they've lost everything except for their faith. And so I did what all of us do, and I became a little selfish and self-centered, and so I used my chaplaincy tactic as I would sit in the room and I'd say, oh, I just can't imagine what you are going through. And then I'd walk out of the room and I would try to imagine. <laughs> We've done this before, right? You, you try to imagine, how would you respond? How would I respond if I was in their bed? How, how would I react to this news? I wonder how I would handle all of this. And maybe, I mean, maybe for some of you, maybe one of the reasons why you're, why you're here in church today is because you've seen somebody have this kind of impressive faith, that you've seen them go through something and you've thought to yourself, wow, I mean, I wonder, I wonder how I would handle all of that. And, and I kind of want to know that if I was to go through what they are going through, what they have gone through, I kind of want to know that I would go through it just as they have gone through it, that I would make it through. I, I want to be that person. I mean, that faith is just impressive. And maybe, I mean, maybe you've witnessed someone who has had that kind of faith that just maybe sparked a little bit of curiosity for yourself and your own faith. And so I want to take us to a story in the Gospel of John that, that kind of forces us to wrestle with this question, that kind of forces us to say, I wonder how I would respond. I wonder, I wonder what my faith looks like in, in light of, in spite of this. But before we get there, I want to talk about John's Gospel just as a whole for a second. You see, John writes his Gospel, his account of Jesus, as a story like all the gospel writers do. But John gives us a clue at the very end of his gospel. He says that he's writing this story with a very specific agenda in mind. And so this is the very end of John's gospel, chapter 20. These are the last words that he writes. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book that I'm writing down, But these are written, the ones that I have included, these are written so that you may believe, there's his agenda, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's how John ends his gospel. That he tells us that the reason why he's writing all of this down, the reason why he's telling his story of his encounters with Jesus, is that so other people like you and me, years later, generations later, might read them and come to believe based on the testimony that John gives here. John's hope in writing this gospel, this story about Jesus, is that those who would read it would have the same reaction to Jesus that John had, which is that just as John saw 
Jesus perform these miracles, just as John heard Jesus teach and preach, that just as John came to believe that Jesus is who he says that he was, that those of us who would read it years later would also come to believe that Jesus is who he says that he was, and that Jesus is who John says that he was. And this is just huge, because I, I can't imagine that as John is writing his story about Jesus, that he could even begin to grasp the idea that nearly 2,000 years later, people would still be reading his story and coming to have new life in Jesus' name because of his testimony. And you know, in some ways, John, just like the rest of the disciples, belief for John and the rest of the disciples, it was almost easier. I mean, they didn't have to believe by faith. They didn't have to take things on faith. They saw with their eyes. They heard these things. They were eyewitnesses. They saw Jesus perform these miracles. They saw Jesus die. They saw Jesus resurrected. I mean, how could they not believe? And if someone were to predict their own death and resurrection today based on the claim that they're the son of God, and they actually pulled it off, I think that we would all say that they at least deserve some serious street cred for doing that. I mean, we'd all have to recognize, like, yeah, that was very impressive. But for us, for us, all we have is the accounts of other people. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, later, Paul, Timothy, the rest. But it's by their testimony, by what they have seen and heard as eyewitnesses to this event, that we might come to believe. That we might come to believe even though we have not seen. And so John tells us a story that causes many of us to say, I can't begin to imagine, but he tells it in such a way that forces us to try to test our imagination. I wonder how I would respond, because that's John's intention all along. That's his agenda. And so this is John chapter 4. Jesus has been uh, spent a few days in Samaria with the people there, and then uh, he heads off to Galilee, and that's where this story picks up. It says, after two days in Samaria, he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself pointed out that, as, that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Um, just interesting thing. Uh, when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he turned the water into wine. You might remember that story. It was a pretty big deal. Uh, Jesus took a bunch of water and turned it into wine at a wedding, but not just any old wine, like really, really good, high-quality stuff, right? And everybody was so impressed with it. Um, And that was Jesus' first miracle, or his first sign, as John puts it in his kind of public ministry. And so now everyone in the area is beginning to talk about Jesus. There's a buzz around Jesus' name. He's beginning to go viral, as viral as you can go, right, uh, during this time. 
time. And now he returns back to Cana in Galilee. And watch what happens next. It says, And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. We're not told the man's name, just that he is a royal official, meaning that he was wealthy, meaning that he had a lot of power, meaning that he didn't have to ask for anything in life. It was just given to him. It was just done for him. But now his son is sick and everything changes. He's probably called on all the doctors taking his son to see everyone who would even look at him, but nobody could figure out what's wrong. So far, nothing has worked. Goes on and it says, when this man, this royal official, heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him from Capernaum and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. The royal official leaves his dying son in Capernaum and travels 16 and a half miles to Cana in Galilee. 16 and a half miles doesn't sound too long, but when you're traveling by foot, that takes about six to seven hours. He travels six to seven hours, leaving his dying son at home to meet his last hope, his last resort, Jesus. And he's only ever heard rumors about Jesus. But this is his last resort. His son is on his deathbed, a day's journey away. And he comes to Galilee to beg Jesus to come back home with him and maybe, just maybe, heal his son. You see, a royal official doesn't beg. But on today, he forgets about the power, the prestige, the privilege, the position, the politics. Because when your son is dying, you beg for mercy. And so if you were to look into your Bible, you might see that there's a heading over this story that says uh, the healing of an official son or healing of a nobleman's son. It should really be titled the healing of a desperate father's son because today, today all the stuff that made him who he was, the power, the prestige, the position, the politics, all of that, it's just pushed aside. That he's not even given a name in this story. He's just a father desperately wants his son to live. Nothing matters anymore except for the thing that matters most to him, his son. And when he finally meets Jesus, after leaving his dying son at home, traveling all day to meet his last hope, his last resort, Jesus is kind of rude. This is what it says in verse 48. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, You will never believe. Now that seems kind of rude and compassionless, especially for Jesus. Uh, But I think that Jesus is just kind of being brutally honest here. That Jesus knows that, especially at this time, people won't believe just based on faith. People don't have faith just because of faith. We don't just believe 
unless we have something to base our faith off of, unless we have some sort of confirmation, or unless we have the testimony of somebody else who has been there before, gone through what we've gone through, and they've made it out the other side because of Jesus. I mean, you could imagine. Could you even imagine? Could you even imagine that we would be talking about Jesus today if he never followed through on the stuff that he had said? He may have had some good teachings, but there's been plenty of good teachers throughout the years. Could you imagine that we would still be gathered to talk about Jesus today if he only said that he could rise from the dead, but he never actually did it? And so, of course, of course, the Father needs to see a sign. Of course, the Father needs to see something. Of course, the Father needs some confirmation. Because these are pretty big claims that Jesus is making about himself, and the stakes are pretty high. His son is about to die. And so the official begging, the official said to him, Sir, sir. And he probably didn't say sir to a whole lot of people. Most people probably called him sir. But in this moment, in this time of desperation, he realizes that he's way beneath Jesus, that he needs him. And so he says, sir, come down before my child dies. And he begs. Because he's thinking that if I can just get this Jesus guy back to my house, then then maybe, just maybe, my son will be healed. You know, desperation kind of brings up a confidence in us sometimes. And maybe for some of us, that's how we came to faith. This desperate confidence that we've hit our last resort. I mean, I know that's true, and that's part of my story of how I came to faith. I seem to have tried everything else. I've tried a whole bunch of other stuff to numb the pain. I've tried anger, I've tried resentment, I've tried revenge, I've tried blaming others, I've tried uh, internalizing the pain and the hurt, I've tried externalizing the pain and the hurt onto other people. And maybe, maybe just maybe, this Jesus thing has the answer. That if I can just get Jesus to come home with me, then maybe, just maybe, my son will be healed. But it's all based on rumors. He's only heard about what Jesus can do. He has no proof. He's only heard that Jesus has turned water into wine, a street magician's trick. But maybe if Jesus was was given a little bit of a bigger platform, then maybe he could pull it off. And so the royal official, he's at an impasse here. And this is a pivotal moment for him, that he, he left his dying son at his house, not knowing if he would still be alive when he returns home one way or the other. And so he knows that he really just has two options. One, that this Jesus guy comes with me and maybe, just maybe, my son will be healed. Or two, this Jesus guy refuses to come home with me and my son inevitably dies. But Jesus gives a third option. And this is where the story gets really interesting. And this is the part of the story that has significance for you and for me more than 2,000 years later. 
that Jesus asks the royal official to do what Jesus has been asking people to do their entire lives, what Jesus has been asking you and me to do all along, even to this day. Jesus asks him to trust him. Based solely on the testimony, which could just be rumors, of other people. Jesus asks him to trust him with his son's life, and he says, Go. Go. Jesus replied, Your son will live. Go. Just go. And I'm not coming with you. Just trust me and go. That your son will live. I mean, can you imagine this? That, that wasn't an option. That, that wasn't, those cards were never on the table. Either you come with me and maybe my son will live or I go back home and I watch my son die. And this is us. This is us. This is our entire life of faith wrapped up in a single day, in a single man's life. That Jesus asks us to place our trust in him, to place our lives in his hands, to place our children, to place our future, to place our careers, to place our everything in his hands and trust him as we go to continue on our way with a prayer still possibly unanswered, or at least the proof of an answered prayer still unvague, still vague and uncertain, to have faith, the confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see to go, to walk by faith. This is our lives in the day of a life of a desperate father. The choice to go, to continue walking, not knowing what the outcome will be, not knowing for certain that the prayer has been answered. And you know, maybe, maybe for us, it's not just a day. Maybe it's not just a six-hour journey. Maybe for us, it's been weeks, months, years, an entire lifetime, walking around, carrying a prayer that is still unanswered for us, not, so, not knowing for certain how it's all going to turn out. And maybe we're hoping for a different outcome with our health, with our family, with our future, with our jobs. And we've been walking around carrying this unanswered prayer, not knowing how things are going to turn out. But we continue to show up. We continue to show up. We continue to give. We continue to trust. We continue to have faith in who Jesus is that he says that he is and trust him as we continue on our journey and we go. So watch this. Here's what happens next. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. 
He believed even when he didn't see. He makes a decision that changes his life and changes the lives of those around him. He decides to trust Jesus and walk back home, still with a prayer unanswered. And so the next day, as he's preparing to walk back home, continue on his six, seven-hour journey back to his family to see if his son is still alive, see if Jesus has pulled it off, he has another decision to make. How will he spend those next six hours on his way back home? Will he have this desperate confidence that that maybe, just maybe, Jesus has done it, that he was right and my son will live? Or, Or will he walk back home in despair? You see, there's a difference between desperation and despair. And it's a thin line that separates the two, but that thin line, that thin line is faith. And it's the barrier between us falling in to despair. That even though we might feel desperate as we're walking that thin line of faith, but we know that it's the only thing that's keeping us from falling into despair. That faith, faith, even a desperate faith, is still the confidence in what we hope for and the assurance of what we do not see, at least not yet. And so this desperate father goes back home He walks away from Jesus. He walks away from the only person who might be able to heal his son. He walks away from his last hope. He walks away from his last resort because he had to. He had to walk away to have his faith confirmed. Sometimes we might feel like the journey back home is a long way away. But as he was walking... As he was walking to head back home, it says this. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when the son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. He gets goosebumps just thinking about it. He gets goosebumps when he makes the connection. I get goosebumps when I hear this story. And I imagine his wife and his entire household are are there to meet him when he arrives. And I imagine that as he walks in the door, the wife runs to him and hugs him and says, he's alive, our son is living. We we don't know how it happened. We don't know how he's all better, but, but something changed and now he's alive, he's all better. It's okay, it's okay that you didn't bring that Jesus guy with you. We don't need him. But the father knows. And the desperate father begins to explain to everyone who's there what still seems unexplainable. That even though Jesus didn't come with him, Jesus did not leave him either. So it says, he and his whole family believed. Because seeing is believing. And you might think, yeah, duh. (laughs) Seeing is believing. 
Yeah, if, if I was that man, if I was that desperate father and I experienced what he experienced, then, then of course I would believe. If I had my prayer answered six hours later the next day, if, if I had this unanswered prayer that I've been carrying around for months and years, if I had that answered, then yeah, of course I would believe. And I get that. I do. But I would also challenge you to do some homework to go and find someone, someone, just about anyone, because we've all been through something before. Find someone who has walked by faith with their prayers still unanswered, and yet they continue to show up. Hear their testimony. Hear their story. Hear how they have continued to walk that thin line of faith. Maybe in times they've fallen into desperation, but they've never fallen into despair. Go find them. Hear their story, their account of their encounters with Jesus. For those of you who I'm talking about right now, For those of you who have been through some stuff and you've got a story to tell, even though the ending may not be resolved for all of you, that even though that prayer might still be unanswered, continue to walk by faith. Because to continue to walk by faith means that your life, that your prayers, your faith, your generosity, your showing up for other people, your investment in other people, your life has not been in vain. That maybe, maybe there's some other people who are watching you, who have been witnessing your story being played out before their eyes, and they find it impressive that they might be saying, I can't begin to imagine. But if I could, I want to be that person. I want that kind of faith. So after Jesus is resurrected, he shows up to his disciples And you might know this, the last disciple that Jesus shows up to is Thomas, the one who doubted that Jesus really did rise from the the dead and pull off what he said he was going to pull off. And this is what Jesus says to Thomas. And it's a word that would come to us years later, but a word Jesus speaks to Thomas, but a word that's really intended for us. Jesus said, told Thomas, because you have seen me, You have believed. Of course you have. Put your hand in the hole, put your finger in the holes of my hand, put them in my side. See that I have really risen from the dead. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's you. That's me. Blessed are those who will come to believe because of your testimony. Blessed are those who will come to believe because of your story. Blessed are those who will come to believe as they watch you walk that thin line of faith. Blessed are those 
who will witness you. And so, God, we know that we come to you. Maybe even today, God, we come after Easter with still some doubts, some confusions. We thought that things would be different after the tomb was empty, but we still might have these questions. God, especially as we see events unfold like we did last week on Easter Day in Sri Lanka, as your children, our brothers and sisters, came to worship you, or just last night, as our Jewish brothers and sisters were attacked. God, we carry around unanswered prayers. We carry around whys. But Lord, you know that. And you hear them. And we trust that you are working out all things for good, even though we can't see it. Give us faith. Give us faith to have confidence in what we hope for, assurance about what we do not yet see here and now. And God, as we wait, as we walk by faith, Lord, we pray that you would build us up, that you would confirm our testimony, that we would be witnesses to how you are working and have worked in our lives. And God, that we would follow that one simple command that you have taught us to do, that as we go about our way, that we would love just as you love us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.